0: It's a long way.
1: And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 232. This week, I would like to thank Neville for their donation on PayPal, as well as Brian and David for supporting this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. You can find out more information about this by heading on over to patreon.com slash history of the great war where you can also read a post about the future of this podcast and of me doing podcasts which hopefully some of you are interested in this week the episode is a little bit different than usual. Last week, I drove up to Kansas City, Missouri, to speak with Dr. Matthew Naylor, President and CEO of the National World War One Museum and Memorial, and Doran Cart, the museum's senior curator. We discussed the museum itself, the change in public interest during the centenary, and the experiences of soldiers after returning home from the front. This is the first interview on the podcast, so if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or concerns about it, as always, the email box is open at historyofthegreatwar@outlook.com. I started off the interview by asking Dr. Naylor about the history of the museum. Thank you for joining me here for for this uh, discussion. Um, So we're here at the National World War I uh, Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. So can you talk about how the memorial was created and also how it ended up in Kansas City of all places?
2: Yeah, it's really a wonderful story of grassroots activism and crowdsource funding <laughs> uh, that just after the uh, armistice a group of community leaders came together to say how might we honor the war dead from the region and what can we do to create a tribute for peace and then that led to a series of discussions and meetings and then to this remarkable uh, um, fundraising campaign 83,000 uh, people participated in uh, in the latter part of 1919 um, so this is in a city of about 250,000 people at the time. So a great proportion of, mm-hmm. the, of the community came together to raise uh, $2.5 million in 10 days, the equivalent today of around about $40 million. Uh, really quite a remarkable uh, effort of, from the grassroots, people saying, we want to do something here to honour those who served, which then led to an architectural competition, uh, the dedication of the land in 1921 with the five Allied commanders from Italy, uh, Belgium, France, the United Kingdom and the US came here. This is at a time where you can't just hop on a plane <laughs> yeah, and fly that, here. That's a commitment. It really it is. here. The first time they had been together with 100,000 people came out to participate in the dedication of this land. Uh, and then they went on to dedicate the Tomb of the Unknown in D.C., a really significant moment. Again, a great outpouring of support by the community. And then in 26, uh, President Coolidge coming to uh, then open this, uh, the memorial um, with 150,000 people gathering uh, here to dedicate this, uh, what has become now the, the nation's national memorial and really claimed that by virtue of the fact that people every year come here to honour those who served. So it it doesn't come about because of a proclamation from on high. Well, actually it does because Congress did proclaim Mm -hmm. the memorial, the National Memorial, but it earned that title because of the fact that for the past almost 100 years, people have continued to respond to the call to remember as they did uh, just after the armistice and um, and have gathered here, and it has become by default and then by actual proclamation then the National uh, Memorial. All through that time, we also were collecting. So I began collecting in 1920, the second oldest collecting institution, second to the Imperial War Museum in London, who began collecting in 1917, we began collecting in 1920, and, uh, and a decision that, made, that was made at that time, not only to build a monument of scale and of architectural significance, but also to collect encyclopedically, to seek to reflect all of those who were uh, preserved the stories of all of those who participated in this catastrophe. And so as a result, we have the most diverse or the broadest collection uh, of any uh, of our peers, of any museum. And then that then led to the opportunity to, as the community responded to some deferred maintenance issues that had caught up with us (laughs) in the 80s and 90s, and again responded by raising more than $100 million, refurbishing and renovating the memorial, and it's understructure, then building a new museum and worthy of its collection. And so in this uh, new museum, which opened in 2006... Uh, having been designated by the U.S. Congress in 2004 as a national museum, uh, it, it now really um, uh, is a, a place of distinction that tells a global story of uh, World War I and its enduring impact. So, uh, so it really began as a grassroots effort representing the very best of American civic engagement of the voluntary sector um, that it was a, a grassroots response and the people of the region of, the, of this, the heartland have stewarded and have cared for the memory, which is now uh, a national responsibility of caring for the memory of those who served and to remember um, the enduring impact and, and learn about the enduring impact of the war uh, on our current and future generations. Um, so a privately funded, community supported uh, uh, institution that serves the globe. Really quite a powerful story, I yeah.
1: think. And as you mentioned, uh, it was, you know, created or started uh, almost a, a century ago. And sort of the last five years have been the centennial commemoration of the First World War all over the world. Um, and there have been, a community, you know, com- commemorative events here, everywhere else. Um, has the museum... Sort of seen and been impacted or seen an impact on overall like public knowledge and interest in the first world war during this time? What is told,
2: what this has told us is that there's a deep vein of interest in World War I. It is the case that people have responded to what has been largely an untold story in the American narrative. I think that World War I is somewhat overshadowed in the US story by the Civil War and World War II. But arguably, World War I is that war which, which brought the US onto the world stage and birthed the American century. And that's captured people's imagination. Throughout the commemorative period, say beginning in 2014 right through till today, we've seen a growth in visitorship of uh, over 60%. So where other historic organisations, according to the American Association of State and Local History, have seen a growth of about 6%. Uh, we've had a growth of over 60%. What that tells me is that there's people want to know about this uh, period in our history and about how the world was forever completely turned upside down and reshaped, that the world came apart and it was put back differently uh, after the war, and that's reflected by the ways in which it's engaged. More examples of that would be... Uh, We uh, curated an exhibition for non-history, non-museum goers that told the story of the US service in World War I. It was an outdoor photographic show. Beautiful, large-scale format photographs of the battlefields of France as they look today. Spectacular. Haunting. We toured it in 10, uh, uh, t- uh, all, t- all up 10 cities. Six cities in the UK, four cities in the United States. Had foot traffic to that outdoor show of over six million. So the largest commemorative exhibition uh, of the US service in World War I in the world. And, and, and it, it touched millions of people who wanted to learn about that. Our educational program in reaching millions of students. All this is to say that there's, a, I think, a real thirst for people to learn about that and to better understand the enduring impact of the war. How the war shaped the world in which we live today and
1: continues to shape it. While at the museum, I also spoke with Doran Cart, the museum's senior curator. So we're here at the National World War One Museum and Memorial here in Kansas City, Missouri, where you are the senior curator. Can you talk
0: about the role of a senior curator on a day-to-day basis? Yes, my primary responsibility is to the collection. And uh, the collection started in 1920, and it's been an international collection since that time. Uh, with uh, collect, we, the museum is collected from all nations involved in the war. And so um, I'm a historian, but I'm also a material culturalist. So I have to really know pretty much everything about everything that was used in the war by all the countries. And so that takes, that takes quite a bit of the time up. Uh, my other main responsibility is exhibitions, uh, because that's what we do is present the materials interpret it. Uh, for our visitors when they're here and also online with their online exhibitions. And um, so I'm always looking, I'm always researching, I'm always looking for more information uh, and even though I've been here almost 30 years, uh, there's still things that I'm learning about World War I because we get more materials, we get more documentation and we try to use original documents for our research materials. Uh, because I trust the people who were there more than I trust people since then to mm-hmm. tell me about World War one okay and so um you know so just anything really about uh, the collections of the museum uh and uh how uh, it's perceived by the people that come here and also how we take care of it, how we store it to preserve it, uh how we use it uh in other uh, places we'd loan a lot of materials all around uh, the country for other exhibitions and so we're really seen as the source of that kind of material uh, as well as information uh, about the world war okay so, so how do you get your
1: items like, oh how, how do you acquire items I guess we uh,
0: we get about 99 percent of the the collection by donation okay by uh, either individuals, or groups, or whoever has held the materials for a certain amount of time. uh, For specific uh, items to enhance the collection, it'll tell us more of a complete story. Uh, We do purchase materials, but to do that, then uh, we have to fundraise because there's no money sitting around to do this if something becomes available. But to give you an example of, uh, of that, Uh, It was like uh, the Harley 1917 Harley-Davidson motorcycle that we had. Well, the fellow wanted to give it to us, but that was uh, quite an imposition on him, and so we did purchase that from him. But really what we do is foster people that we know have these materials, Uh, some for many years and some they're almost immediate, Uh, and uh, they're always willing to give what they can to the museum. And, um, and it's, like I said, we get materials from all over the world. I just got a helmet from a fellow in Italy who donated it to the museum. And uh, a cane from France, a hand-carved cane from a soldier there. So we have a worldwide reputation of how we take care of the collection and how it's used to teach the history of World War I.
1: Okay. That, cool. Um, I think when a lot of people think about uh, returning soldiers, our viewpoints from a modern era are sort of colored by the events, whether real or fictional, of like soldiers coming home in 1945, ticker tape parades, marching bands, similar sort of events. Did these type of events happen when the American troops started returning from Europe after the war? Oh, um,
0: Most certainly. Okay. Uh, they didn't really do ticker tape. Parades, But they did parades in almost every major city. Uh, New York, there was one very large one because Pershing actually took part in it. Uh, that was later. That was in 1919. But here in Kansas City, uh, when a lot of the returning uh, Missouri veterans, including a local fellow named Harry Truman, came back from the war, uh, they paraded on Grand Boulevard here in town. And they actually created this kind of triumphal arc. Okay. Uh, arch that went across the road, and it looked like it was made out of stone, but it was actually made of wood and paper mache because <laughs> it was for one day-huh and they all paraded underneath it everybody ha- uh, they were hanging out the windows of all the office buildings along the route and uh, and then also uh, when the trains went across and carrying uh, returning soldiers and sailors and marines and and women's service people. Uh, almost every stop and they were greeted and welcomed back to the uh, to the country and um, it was really um, it was really important I think uh, especially for the local areas to welcome home their their people who had gone overseas to serve and you have to realize that uh, a huge number of the people who went to serve men and women who served overseas for the United States had never been farther away than their state. Some had never seen the ocean and went across the the Atlantic Ocean on uh, the large uh, troop ships. And so to come back basically the same way and be welcomed back for their service, it was very important uh, for them.
1: Uh, Do you know uh, how long it took? Because... uh Obviously, they didn't all come back in one set of ships to come back to the United States. Do you know the time period? Like, when did the last serviceman sort of come back from Europe?
0: Well, um, it, it was across many months, that's for sure. Uh, they first started um, coming back in December of 1918 uh, on the transport ships. Um, we don't know exactly when the last came back because there were American soldiers and service personnel in Siberia and North mm-hmm. Russia. Uh, well past 1919 and so they would have uh, been a later uh, arrival back in the United States but primarily the bulk uh, from the the people who served on the western front or in England or in Italy um, really got back in that uh, by the end of the summer of 1919
1: Okay. Uh, do you know if those soldiers in, in Russia in Siberia um, if they were treated any differently because they, they weren't part of what was probably considered the main action, I, I guess? No,
0: I think they were welcomed back the same way. It's just they were smaller groups, and so they didn't have the largest parades. It tended to be more like where they landed at, especially the ones who were in uh, Vladivostok and things. They landed, of course, on the west coast. And so uh, that was a different kind of bring, place to bring troops back. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the West Coast, but no, they were they were, were not forgotten. They knew they were over there, and they were ordered to be there by President Wilson, and so um, uh, you no, know, they were. And a lot of them had actually gone, especially the ones in uh, Siberia, had gone up from the Philippines, and so they returned to their home bases in the Philippines. and Of course, they were welcome back there. So there's not really a blanket uh, welcome back. But uh, everything I've seen, you know, really shows that there was a conscious effort on the people on the home front to to welcome them back, okay. and this included the African American soldiers as well. Okay. Um,
1: so there were, of course, those who did not return. Yes. Uh, from the war, yes. uh, in some countries, organizations were created to to make sure that those who perished were were properly taken care of. Uh, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is probably at least the most well known yes. among the people I've talked to. Was there
0: were there similar organizations created in the United States for that purpose? Certainly, um, you know, in on the battlefields or near the battlefields for the deceased, uh, they were handled by the graves uh, registration, and these were specific troops uh, designated for that. Um, they they. Early on, they were kind of placed where they fell, and then later on, as the war was winding down, they actually created larger cemeteries, and the and the bodies, the remains were moved to these larger cemeteries, which in turn uh, uh, became the American Battle Monuments Commission, uh, which handles all the American graveyards, uh, cemeteries overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, then. Uh, people uh relatives of the deceased were given an option in the 1920s if they wanted their um, son or daughter to be brought back they could at government expense could have them brought back and buried in their local cemeteries here and i think probably i don't know a real percentage on that but it wasn't a huge percentage probably around 30 percent most of them wanted them to stay with their comrades where they'd fallen and um, that was then led to the Gold Star Mother and Widows Pilgrimages uh, that started in 1930, uh, and it was a government-run program to take these women uh, to go visit the graves of their fallen at these national cemeteries that had been created, and uh, they were treated, you know, very well because their loss had been extensive, of course. And, um, but it was a chance for them to actually go from a small community, say like Iuka, Mississippi, to go overseas, see the grave of their fallen uh, and um, appreciate where they'd been and understand because they were a long way from home. And now even now when we take our battlefield tours. Uh, we always go to the American cemeteries. And if someone on our tour has a relative that's been buried there or in the British cemeteries or the French, wherever, uh, then we make sure that we include that as one of our stops so they can see that. And um, so the, uh, the, um, the ABMC does an incredible job today, and they know... You can look online and find out if they're still buried overseas. You can know exactly where they're, they're buried, what cemetery. And so they've always been treated very well, I mean, right from after the end of the war. Uh, and then um, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown in Arlington Cemetery actually contained the remains of a World War I. There was only one war, war, world war at that time. Uh, and there was a sergeant who was chosen to pick from five caskets, basically, who would be the unknown soldier that would be placed in the tomb there. And uh, we don't know if it's a soldier or what because it was very secret. Mm-hmm. And, and even right after he chose one, they took him out of the room and they moved the caskets around and see if he would you know, make the same choice. And so I think they were very conscious because it was the largest war of that type that had been fought overseas and to respect uh, the deceased.
1: Today, I think
0: there is a
1: social recognition of the mental trauma that those in combat can experience, trauma that stays with them after they return home. Do we know anything about the experiences of World War I veterans who were experiencing what today we refer to as like PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, but at the time didn't really have that terminology attached to it?
0: No, the term that kind of came out of the war was shell shock. I didn't really describe it completely, but it was the only thing they could really come up with. Uh, they were um, There was not a great uh, treatment of mental Uh, disability from the war. Uh, The physical disabilities tended to get more of the attention because you could see it. Uh, But they did come up with some programs uh, with, I don't know, what kind of counseling and things that they did. I'm sure it was really primitive at the time. But they did recognize that a person could be wounded in war with an unseen wound. Uh, And... um, they're really, some of it was really tragic because they couldn't really tell. Uh, and then some uh, came back with really nothing, nothing that it in, it affected them. Later on, uh, they saw it as their duty. Uh, they What they encountered was really where they were at and where they were supposed to be at the time. And a lot of them were fatalists. And if they didn't, If they did survive and things well, then they considered themselves very lucky. But we really haven't done a lot of study uh, into that uh, other than the American um, uh, records that were done for the medical service in the war. And they did keep a lot of records on Mm -hmm. that and what kind of treatments and things that were done. And that was really later even, in 1924, Um, when this kind of manifested itself. Uh, And so uh, it's kind of different. Well, it was really different from it is today uh, because it was a different societal uh, kind of way of looking at at things.
1: Okay. Uh, Were there programs just in general to reintegrate veterans back into society, as a whole, um, beyond just just the the shell shock victims.
0: But. Oh, I think so, and very much in employment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with uh, they had great campaigns. Uh, we had an exhibit here last year on on that of welcoming uh, the people home and helping them get back into either their their few their previous employment or in new uh, employment because you have to realize that the the entire country mobilized. Mm-hmm. And so uh, new jobs were created in manufacturing and, and, you know, in just transportation uh, and all kinds of things that led to new kinds of um, uh, employment. But one of the areas that really came about early in the 1930s to help some of the soldiers who hadn't been able to acclimate uh, back in was the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it was really created as kind of a pseudo-military operation that built a lot of the national parks and uh, the lodges and things like that. And uh, they were really um, an important segue. And this gave guys a um, way to learn how to work in forestry and, and to work in construction and things like that. So it was a very conscious effort and also, there was a conscious effort to make them um, seen as important parts of the society, um, and they could wear the uniforms when they came back. Uh, but so they were known; they were been discharged. They wore a red chevron on their left sleeve, so that would show that they had been were a returning veteran, and so uh, they asked that be they be were you know given um, proper Um, treatment, I guess, the uh, women who served overseas, over 40,000 American women served overseas in various capabilities, uh, didn't have the same kind of um, support, I would think, um, because the jobs that they did, really, those jobs didn't exist in the United States, because you didn't have camp canteens anymore, and and the, and they a lot of them that were telephone operators did go back and work as telephone operators because they'd been at AT and T and and they came back to their jobs there. Uh, but um, you didn't need the number of nurses, uh, the rehabilitation um, workers, and things like that bef- that had occurred before the war, uh, but uh, or during the war, but they were. Um, Not as, I think, not as visible, uh, the women who served when they came back. Um, But they were in uniform. They they were uniformed um, personnel. Uh, It was just uh, our country really didn't know how to deal with women. Uh, But they were also the forefront of suffrage, of getting uh, the amendment passed for women's suffrage. And so they had seen the world, and they knew what women could do. And so they really led that effort, I think. Okay. There were also thousands of African-American
1: soldiers who served overseas during the war, both under the command of the AEF and then of the French Army. Uh, Given the discrimination experienced by African-Americans at sort of this point of American history, was the experience of African-American veterans recognized by sort of the rest of the country in the same way that it was for everybody else?
0: Um, no, it wasn't great. Uh, there was the, um, the Red Summer of 1919, where uh, numbers of returning soldiers, especially in the South, but in Chicago as well, uh, who were actually lynched wearing their uniforms, because they were seen as, you know, they come back and weren't ready to go back into their place they had before the war. And so it was a really horrible period for a lot of them. Uh, a, a lot that had um, work skills that they had gotten during the war, uh, you know, were treated better, especially in the northern states. Uh, but, you no, know, they, uh, they said you know, they went over there fighting for liberty and got back and didn't have any liberty. And so it was, it was not a good time for that, and that really then uh, carried over to the next war uh, in that they, they volunteered, they were drafted, uh, they, wanted, they supported the war effort, uh, but then uh, were not treated very well, and a lot of them became expatriates. Uh, And especially the people who played in the bands, the regimental bands and things like that, uh, actually stayed in Europe and, um, you know, became entertainers there and things like that. But on the whole, no, they were not treated well at all.
1: Do... Do you get the sense when looking at the documents and things that the soldiers who served in the war, or I guess, what do you think they thought about their time in the war, or why they were sent over there, or what they accomplished while over there? That's
0: a that's a loaded question. Um, uh, some thought they really did uh, what they were sent, was to save the world for democracy. Others saw it as a great adventure. hmm Uh, and then others saw it as a horrible duty that they had to perform for the folks at home. Uh, And um, I don't think there was any one attitude that came back with them. I think they were kind of all over the place uh, as far as what they accomplished in the war. I've read a lot of uh, letters and diaries. They mostly quit their diaries when they got back, but the letters uh, continued... Uh, and they said, you know, they were proud that they went, but they were glad to get home. Uh, and uh, and then the fellows especially who were in occupation of Germany through 1919 until the Treaty of Paris at uh, Versailles was signed, um, you know, they, were, they really wanted to come home. They thought they'd been there and done what they had to do, but they were put in this occupation to make sure that Germany did toe the line and did uh, not try to rearm uh, before the treaty was signed. And so they were a lot later coming back, and they tended to be a lot more, um, you know, why did I have to stay kind of thing. And they saw some people who got over to Europe in September of 1918 and basically went back on the same boats. Well, the reason for that was they hadn't had experience in combat. They hadn't had experience in dealing with the Germans, and so they were sent back earlier. Uh, but it's hard to, kind of hard to argue with a guy who's been overseas for over two years and he's sitting around in Germany and he can't drink beer. He can't uh, you know, eat when he wants to and he can't fraternize with the people there. So you can see why they, they wanted to come back and get back to their normal lives.
1: What was the reputation of the American occupation troops in Germany
0: from the perspective of the Germans? Um, some liked it. Uh, some liked it because Americans had money. <laughs> and Americans wanted souvenirs. And they uh, they treated the children very well, especially the orphans. Uh, others just saw them as taking over their houses, throwing all their furnishings out in the street and, and living in their houses. Others saw them as helping rebuild the roads, Uh, And, um, you know, so it was a real mixed bag. And this is one area that I've really done a lot of work on is the occupation of Germany. And um, they did try, of course, they were the British and the French sectors as well. Uh, They liked being in the American sector better, mainly because American soldiers were paid better. Uh, And uh, they didn't have any money at all. Their inflation and everything was mm-hmm. just a, a, atrocious there. We were talking about that the other day. And um, and then the Americans treated them fairly well. Um, they they said kind of, of course, they wouldn't let the German soldiers wear their uniforms. said, so that's done. You can't wear those anymore. And uh, you can't go around with weapons or anything like that. And so it was a... It was an occupation. They wanted to tell him they were there for a reason and that there they they was were, they were mainly a military police force that was there. To end our interview, Doran spoke about the
1: importance of studying the years after the war and how they are often forgotten.
0: Well, I think uh, the really, uh, and, and I've done this in the special exhibition we have right now on, on uh, peace uh, 1919 is to really show how did people adapt to homecoming. How did they adapt to an uneasy peace? Because peace really didn't take place. Uh, it was uh, there was still quite a bunch uh, of disturbances that were going on, especially in Russia, uh, in the civil war, and in in Germany among the factions in Germany themselves, mm-hmm. not with Germans against the Americans. Uh, so much, but um it really uh, the war really didn't end of course it didn't end up people think it ended on the armistice of November eleventh nineteen eighteen all that was was an armistice, and people don't know that it was really renewable every thirty days to, you know to keep this as an armistice uh and so it was really um I always kind of say that th- I look at the war as it started with the guys wearing silk top hats. It was fought by the guys wearing the tin helmets. And then as soon as the fighting was over on the Western Front, the silk top hats came back out, <laughs> and they took over again. And so, um, and that's kind of every every conflict uh, that occurs. You know, you have the, the people in the middle there that are having to do all the dirty work. Uh, and then... Um, you know it's really I think it's a fascinating period that 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 period right after the armistice and how people were guarded what they had done and really had they accomplished what they sent out set out to do and in certain aspects they had they opened up the sea lanes again, there were no more submarine attacks uh, there were no more civilian ships being sunk and um they had taken care of gotten the occupation or the enemy occupations out of the countries that they'd gone into and moved them out, so they got especially in France and in Belgium, and they got those nations back up in industrial um efforts going again so um I think it's a kind of an unknown period of the war and but that's what we'd work on here. We try to teach. Each aspect of the war through the material culture, through the objects uh, that we have in the collection and that we're able to acquire. And to really tell people that um, this didn't end things, it just kind of led to, (laughs) to things that are still occurring in our world today. I also spoke with Dr. Naylor about the future
1: of remembrance of the First World War, especially as we move past the centenary, which is what I refer to as a period of concentrated commemoration. One of the concerns uh, I've seen voiced by um, several people um, over the last several years is a concern that moving away from the centenary, we would see a drop of of public interest uh, in the conflict. We're a year and some change out from the signing of the armistice. Has the museum seen, seen that in yeah. any way? I think it's to be expected
2: that there's going to be a bit of a, a right sizing. Uh, we haven't really seen that yet. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, during 2019, that has been some of our largest months in the history of, of the museum. It's encouraging. It is encouraging. Um, so I think that if we're able to listen to what, the community are interested in and respond to that, uh, that there's going to be a growing interest in the, in World War I and its enduring impact. You now, there's not a day that we don't wake up where we're not dealing with issues that come out of decisions made during World War I. And so as we're able to tell those stories and build those linkages, I think it really appeals to people.
1: Okay. Um, so I I create a podcast, a very digital form of... of- Education, hopefully, and entertainment. Uh, a lot of educational material is available digitally and online. What do you see as sort of the unique abilities of a museum uh, like the one we're sitting in uh, today in Kansas City, which is based around physical items? Like, what do you think you you can help bring to the public? Yeah, I,
2: I think that uh, those two things live together. That the three dimensional experience of visiting a memorial and visiting a museum and seeing close close-up, seeing and being able to be at a memorial and, and the visceral experience of that, of being at ceremonies and, and so on, that that is um, deeply meaningful and impactful for people. But the reality is that many people won't be able to visit here and so uh, we have a, a, a commitment to make the, the content of the National World War I Museum and Memorial available to the 4 billion people who have internet access. And I think that the technologies will enable us to be able to take content uh, and make it available. Here's some examples. We only have available to uh, to the public when they come and and visit our spectacular galleries about 7% of our collection. Now we have plans in the coming years to be able to expand that, to bring out thousands of more objects. But there's going to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of objects that people otherwise wouldn't see. We want to be able to make that available for people to be able to make use of. And, and the digital experience can be really uh, quite different than the experience of being at uh, the museum. Let me give an example. For, 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 uh, if, if we're looking at small photographs that are tell significant narratives and part of a, an important exhibition that's being told, and you, however, can't get, you know, within perhaps a foot of those photographs, and it may be small, but being able to explore those digitally, you, in fact, can look at the styles of moustaches that the guys are wearing and and, and have a conversation about, about barbering techniques in the Great War in a way that you can't do that when you're looking at a, at a, a three-dimensional exhibition. Digital gives us a whole new way of examining and exploring, and let alone making these uh, materials available to um, students and the family so that they can do their own research. We also have found that there's a real interest in our educational content through our YouTube channel. Over the last three years, we've seen a doubling of engagement in our YouTube channel that we're projecting this year, it'll be close to about 10 million minutes of of YouTube content watched That's in the few. year. It is. In fact... In October, it was almost 900,000 minutes watched of, of uh, video content. How wonderful it is that we're able to have within, you know, sometimes a couple of days or immediately, a lecture online that within a couple of days, as was the case with Gary Armstrong's presentation recently, more than 2,000 people had then had watched that. Mm-hmm. And so we think that there's a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to package content digitally and make it available for people. There's a thirst for that, as is evidenced by this massive growth that we've had over the last numbers of years. So we think that we can explore both of these worlds, the physical world, which is a much more visceral, uh, immersive experience, and then providing content for people to be able to utilise and explore digitally for for, for different use. And our commitment is to be able to do both of those.
1: To end our interview, Dr. Naylor spoke about the importance of studying the First World War and why, over 100 years later, that importance has not diminished.
2: Sometimes people sort of think that uh, history is um, like grandma's attic stuff. And uh, it's, it really doesn't have a lot of meaning and importance for us today. And we, we like to joke that it was it Mark Twain who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes? Perhaps another way of saying that is learning lessons from the past can better equip us to deal with the opportunities of the future, and we think that there's an enormous amount to learn from the uh, of what happened to the world as the world came undone, leading up to and during and subsequent to World War One, which can inform the current conditions in which we live today. It's uh, Margaret Macmillan, the esteemed historian, who says that the world today is more like the world of nineteen thirteen, perhaps, than it's been since the last 106 years. That's both an opportunity and a warning to us. And so here at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, I think we take that seriously, that we seek to make accessible to the public this difficult, to, difficult story and we unpack it in a way which I think enables people to better understand what was happening leading up to and during the war, which then they're able to further explore, to better equip uh, us collectively to deal with the challenges in the coming years. That's an opportunity for us that so many people are responding to. And so I'd invite people to um, explore with us the worldwar.org, to come to the National World War I Museum and Memorial, um, to, to experience that, to to learn about how the world today is being shaped by decisions of the past. It really is a very compelling story.
1: I would like to thank Dr. Naylor and Doran Cart for joining me for this interview today. And if you missed it, the website for the museum is theworldwar.org. Uh, the National World War Museum Memorial gets my highest recommendation. If you're ever in Kansas City, definitely check it out. Thank you for listening. Over the next five days, I'll be releasing five previously Patreon-specific episodes of the podcast to the normal uh, podcast feed. You'll see those pop up over the next five days. I'll have a reason for those in an introduction to those episodes. And then next week will be the final episode of the podcast that I'm titling Epilogue, which will be talking about the legacy of the war and why remembering the history of the war is so important.
0: This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas. And this is Carl off his motorcycle.
1: Balsa wood is very different than teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey,
0: check out that view. Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road. Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.